Let's pray once again. Our Father, as we look into your word on another Lord's Day, we thank you that we're blessed to have the word of God. Thank you that your word speaks to us as nothing else does, that it penetrates deep down into our thoughts, down to the level of our motives as to why we do what we do. And so, Lord, may your word have its way among us, and may we understand it clearly, and may we seek to put it into practice, the things we learn from it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Recently, I've been sorting through several boxes that we have um, been entrusted with from my family, uh, boxes of family history. I mean, we have tons of stuff in our family history, which is a good thing, including boxes of uh, all stacks of letters, old letters. Uh, we have uh, numerous photos. Uh, thankfully, my father wrote on the back of a lot of those. And then we have three large Bibles, you know, those big, uh, like, like we have the pulpit Bible here, uh, with all sorts of genealogical information recorded in there. And one of the things I came across in my sorting um, was the, a number of report cards that belonged to my great-grandmother, who was born in 1853. And she attended, apparently, a private women's high school, I guess you'd say. It's called Coiners Springs Female Institute in Roanoke, Virginia. And I have here in front of me a copy of the weekly record of her performance for the week of March the 5th, 1869. And in this, they uh, give updates and give her numbers from zero to five for the following areas, punctuality, deportment, orthography, which I think is a fancy word for spelling, uh, elocution, penmanship, grammar, composition, Latin, and she, I think, paid extra and was studying music. She was about 15 years of age at the time. Now, so she got weekly a report about her progress or lack of such, and uh, she also, sure, was uh, given that for her parents' reasons so that they could also learn how well she's performing in school. Now, we come this morning in Acts chapter 9 to what I am calling and what other commentators have called a progress report, a church, early church progress report. I hope you got your Bible open to Acts chapter 9. We're just going to look at one verse today. I'm going to decide to slow down and I wanted to unpack some of the things I thought were interesting within this one verse. And so if you're following along with me, we're just going to read the one verse here, Acts 9 verse 31. We read, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace and being built, sorry, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Now, this, this is one of several progress reports that are recorded by Luke in the gospel, in the book of of Acts, uh, you, if you want to make note of this in your notes, uh, chapter 2, verses 46, 47, sort of a summary statement of what's happening there. 
And chapter 4, verse 32 is another progress report. And then finally, chapter 5, verses 12 to 14 is another brief report on what has happened and the progress of the church. But when Luke includes this particular progress report, I believe he's trying to very carefully include two perspectives as to what is going on here. On the one hand, I think he's trying to affirm and notice the fact that God is sovereignly at work directing his people to make their gospel witness and to dramatically bring about conversions of people who are lost. It's clearly the work of God who has been doing these things in the, in the records of the book of Acts. He also is showing in this progress report that the church members are actively proclaiming the gospel and they're living out the gospel with each other in their community of faith. So I'm just going to uh, briefly summarize this with a couple of just examples of how this works. For example, in chapter 8, verses 1 and 4, we saw previously that God sovereignly was at work in the early church when he disperses the believers that were all gathered in Jerusalem and due to the fact that they were now undergoing severe persecution, they began to what? Disperse. The word is diaspora, which is the Greek word for it, which means they have now spread out. And so that began to happen because of severe persecution. I believe that's God working there. We also know that God in chapter 8 was sovereignly led Philip to intersect with a guy from Ethiopia who happened to be reading a scroll of Isaiah at the same time the two of these guys come together and through this encounter God made that a life-changing conversion experience for this man from Ethiopia. We also know that God in chapter 9 sovereignly confronts and converts Saul the persecutor. And he proceeds to transform Saul. He begins to see the evidence of now uh, Paul, Saul is a person who is a, 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 a gospel-loving, Christ-proclaiming person who himself now begins to suffer persecution. And so God has been mightily working to, to change things that people thought would never change. And we also see, in terms of this progress report, that church members have been faithfully taking the gospel to unsaved people beyond the borders of Jerusalem. We noticed in chapter 7 that Stephen was making gospel proclamation there in Jerusalem, and as a result of his gospel proclamation, he lost his life, died as a martyr, giving faithful words about the good news of Christ. It is Philip who at that time also, uh, in chapter 8, his heart was changed and transformed by the gospel so that he was willing to leave the people that he loved and that he was similar to, and he crossed over the boundary going north into Samaria, and he began to proclaim the gospel to people who, prior to the working of the gospel in his heart, would have been people that he had deeply ingrained prejudice toward and bigotry toward these people. And here he is taking the gospel to them in a, in a beautiful way of showing forth the love that comes because of the gospel in the hearts of God's people. And lastly, part of our review here is chapter 9. Of course, we have Ananias of Damascus and the guy named Barnabas, the encourager. They're living out the gospel by forgiving their former enemy. They're forgiving the man 
uh, who was at one time trying to eradicate Christians, they are embracing him now as a new believer, and they're integrating him into the family of God. A man who only a short time ago, as an unbeliever, was viewed as an enemy of theirs and as a person who was a blasphemer. Now, this progress report contained in chapter 9, verse 31, contains both of these elements. God has been at work in reconciliation and regeneration. The church members have been at work, faithfully witnessing out of their love for the lost and love for their fellow members. Both of these things, I would suggest to you, are indicators of a healthy, vibrant, dynamic church. God is working, and the people of God are at work. You'll notice in verse 30 of chapter 9 that Saul, because of concerns about his safety, they didn't want another Stephen incident to take place of perhaps him become, being stoned while he's there in Jerusalem. They ship him off to Caesarea and eventually back up to his hometown. And so the church now has a moment to reflect on the gospel work that's been going on among them. I wonder when was the last time you considered a progress report in your life? What areas would you think are significant in terms of spiritually what's happening in the issues of your heart and life? How would we quantify and measure the progress of our church? I brought with me this morning uh, one of several books, but one is particularly I think is helpful at this point, and I'm not going to go into it too much in detail other than to read you the table of contents. But the book is called 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health by uh, Whitney, Donald Whitney. Listen to the questions he poses as just the table of contents, a very good book. He asks these questions. Do you thirst for God? Are you governed increasingly by God's word? Are you more loving? Are you more sensitive to God's presence? Do you have a growing concern for the spiritual and temporal needs of other people? Do you delight in the bride of Christ, that is the local church? Are the spiritual disciplines increasingly important to you? Things like prayer, reading the word, and uh, fellowship. Do you still grieve over sin? Are you a quicker forgiver? I like that question. Are you a quicker forgiver? And lastly, do you yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus? Spiritual progress. It's a good way to sometimes gauge it. I would find that to be quite challenging for many of us to take our time and work through a book like that and say, you know, I would like to know how am I progressing in my walk with Christ? Is there evidence of your own involvement in gospel ministry within the church and outside the church? Well, these are the things we're going to consider this morning. We're going to look at several characteristics that Paul seemed to want to highlight as a way of measuring the progress of the church at that time. And so follow along in your notes here, and we'll notice a couple of these. First of all, he mentions the fact that the church is diversified and the church is unified. There's an interesting little phrase that starts off in chapter 9, verse 31. In this progress report, he says, The church throughout all Judea 
and Galilee and Samaria. Now you're saying, okay, what in the world is, are we supposed to get out of that phrase? That doesn't seem like much at all. We've heard these places before. But I want you to think about why this is noteworthy. It's because, remember now, Luke is referring to early believers who are now in three different localities. They're in Jerusalem, Judea, which is, of course, the hub and the real center of where things have always been, spiritually speaking, uh, for many years for the people of God. But now it's beyond there. It's gone into Samaria, and it's also in Galilee. And notice that he does not say the three churches in these three different areas. He says the church. Now, the New Testament writers use the word church in two different ways. On the one hand, sometimes they'd use the word church. They're referring to the invisible population of all of God's people. Every believer, wherever they live, all that's why we call it invisible, because you can't see them all at the same time, because it involves all believers, those who have died and, and the, those who are still alive. That is the complete people of God, as it were, the ones for whom Christ died. But then there's another use of the word church. It refers to a visible group of professing believers who gather together and worship in one particular locality. It seems like he's using the first definition, right? He's, he's talking about the fact that the early believers that made up the church at that time were in these three different places. And in this progress report, you're noticing that the gospel is spread not only in Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria, which again is the former enemies of the original recipients of the gospel, the Jews there. Uh, for Samaritans, that's a big deal that they would now be embraced and a part of the kingdom of God. But also for the first time, we learned the gospel now has gone into Galilee. Now, if you have your maps in the back of your Bible, Galilee is the area near the Sea of Galilee. It's even further north than Samaria. And that, of course, is a place where many of the apostles were raised. That's where they're born. That's where they grew up. That's where Jesus spent most of his growing up years in Nazareth up in the north. And the question comes, well, who's the one that took the gospel there? When did this take place that now there's a church, there's a, gathered, a gathering of believers there in Galilee? And the answer is, Luke didn't say. We don't know. It's very likely maybe some of the apostles did go back up there and say, listen, folks, you've got to hear this amazing news. What we learn in this text is that this is not an exhaustive account of everything that God was doing. It's not an exhaustive account of everything the believers are doing. Which then leads me to understand then that in this clause of chapter 9, verse 31, it's a general summary. It celebrates the fact that the church has begun to exponential growth. There are these new clusters of believers located in three different primary areas. And what's amazing is that now they are joined together in a sense that they are one. They are unified around the gospel of Christ. They are one people of God. And what God accomplishes redemptively through his faithful witnesses of his followers is not always known, it's not always widely broadcasted what everyone is doing. I think that's an encouragement for you and for me. As we're serving Christ, as we're seeking to make Christ known among people that are in our sphere of influence, it's not always known widely what's going on there. We don't always hear about it. It doesn't always become a large news item that's well known. There are many things that happen in the kingdom of God that aren't known to everybody. 
But there are things happening that we need to be thrilled about, including what's happening in Maine with the Plasinskis and the fact that our church is partnering with them and we're seeing God do some amazing things to, to have the faith to see that we want to see the kingdom of God grow even in that area beyond where he is working here. I also came across, and I'm going to not spend a lot of time on this, but I also came across recently a report about what's happening in the church in a very unlikely place in our world, the country of Iran. Iran. This particular article was saying that persecution has threatened over the last number of years, 20, 25 years, has threatened to wipe out Iran's tiny church. Instead, the report said, the church in Iran has become the fastest growing in the world. The fastest growing church in the world. And it's influencing the whole region of the Middle East for Christ. Did you know that? It's not on the front of News Bay, I assure you. The article went on to say that in 1979 there was a revolution and the hardliners came into office and for the next 20 or so, so years, most of the missionaries were kicked out of the country. Uh, all evangelism was outlawed. Uh, the Bibles that were printed in the Persian uh, translation were banned. Several pastors were killed. And yet, despite all those things, Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel in the Middle East. You say, why is that? The article went on to say, partly is because all of this violence in the name of Islam has begun to cause widespread disillusionment. Many Muslims are saying, what gives here? This does not make sense to me. And because of that, they are coming, they're really, many of them are questioning their beliefs in ways they never have in the past. Secondly, Iranian Christians have what? They have continued to boldly and faithfully tell others about Christ. And so I'll leave with this final summary of the report. It said, more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than the previous 13 centuries. Rejoice. God's at work. And his people are at work. But we don't always hear about it. We don't always know everything that's happening in the church of Jesus Christ. Second thing I want to point out here in our outline is I want us to think further about this statement of the progress report of the church to notice that there was a time of outward calm and inner strength. Outward calm and inner strength. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up, enjoyed peace, being built up. The church enjoyed peace at that time. I think he's talking about the fact that they are, for once, for a change, they were given an opportunity where sovereignly God began to remove this concern about persecution that they had received for so long. Not only did they have their nemesis, Saul, now one of them, he's become now a follower of Jesus. No longer is he trying to eliminate and eradicate the church. But also we know that God has changed the political landscape. There are people who were in place who at one time were giving in to letting this stuff go forward. Now those people are trying to say, let's enough of that. 
And so some political changes had taken place. Therefore, the threats of killing, the threats of incarceration have decreased substantially now. Therefore, the believers have greater freedom, freedom to evangelize, freedom to meet openly in their respective locations. Which again reminds me that what? God is sovereign over his church. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the, land, in the hand of the Lord. He, I think he's talking about irrigation channels. So that just as they can uh, shut off the water that flows one particular field and make sure that gets irrigated, and then they'll shut that off and make this field. And he's saying, just as sure as like channels in, of water in the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he wishes. In other words, God changes the kings and the situations that go on anytime he wants to, in any way he wants to. It is God who sovereignly transformed the heart of the enemy of the church of Jesus Christ, this guy named Saul, the persecutor. And now, for a short period of time, there's no more persecution. But we know that that peace did not last too long. It wasn't too long before Emperor Nero decided for various reasons to use the Christians as the main focal point of the frustration, anger, and how bad things were going in that society. And so they began to receive the wrath. As, a, as Peter says, a fiery ordeal among these early believers, as many of them died as martyrs because of their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that we are still able to enjoy a time of peace right now in our society but it is certainly unclear how long that will be the case. As I'm talking to some of my pastor friends, as we look at the trends in our society, I believe the time is quickly approaching when the followers of Jesus Christ in this country will, and perhaps already have, lost many of the constitutional rights that we thought we were to have to the free exercise of religion. And so what should we be doing then in this time in which we do now have still peace. We still have the opportunities to move about, to minister as we see fit. Well, what did the early church do? Well, the text says they spent time being built up. You see that in your text? Being built up. Rather than sitting on the sidelines and sort of taking it easy, uh, lessening their involvement, Instead of doing that, they sought to edify, to build each other up in the Lord. Because I'm sure that when you have persecution, having opportunities to get together with other believers and enjoy fellowship like we are today, gathering in the name of Christ on the Lord's Day, is something you don't have a lot of freedom to do. And so they are spending time together. They are trying to build each other up in their faith. Jesus' disciples took advantage of this calmer situation to do what? To disciple and to build each other up so that they might grow in grace. They might grow in godliness as brothers and sisters in Christ. My friend, you and I have that opportunity. The gospel that works so mightily in their hearts is the gospel that can propel us to become people who disciple each other. Right now, the book that we're looking at on Wednesday night is called Mark Dever's book, Discipling, How to Help Others Follow Jesus. And I've included a quote from that book in your notes. I'd like to just read it to you or you can read along with me. 
as he makes a comment about, and we talked about this this past Wednesday, this is why I'm repeating it, uh, for my own sake and for hopefully your sake. He says, being a disciple of Jesus means orienting our lives toward others. What he's saying here is that rather than being a person who just sits back and says, well, whatever I like to do or whatever is about me, I'm just going to only do what I feel like doing, and I don't really want to get too involved. I don't want to get too close to other people. I don't want to have to get uh, you know, messy with somebody else's problems. Or No, discipling, being a disciple, means orienting our lives toward other people, just as Jesus did. It means laboring for the sake of others. This love for others is at the heart of discipling. We set our sights on serving others for Christ's sake, just as Christ came into the world, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's sad, but I think far too many Christians adopt a consumer approach to Christianity, whereby their church involvement ends up becoming based primarily on a consumer relationship with the local church that's focused primarily on making sure that their needs, their desires, and their preferences are met. And if it isn't met, if it isn't going the way they want it to go, if it isn't singing the kind of music they like, they move on to somewhere else where they find what they like, and they'll just bounce around to wherever they need to go because they're primarily consumer Christians. Now, I'm a consumer shopper when it comes to food. My wife and I uh, only have two of us now to, to buy groceries for, but we are committed to several different places that we find certain kind of foods because some stores have things you can't find in others. Some people have much cheaper produce and better produce and more uh, abundance of that. Other people have certain products that we like in this particular way they offer it. And so we shop at three or four different places. Now, at any given moment, our loyalty to those stores will change. At, in, at any moment, it'll change. If they raise the prices at that store, or if the store says, we're moving to another location farther away, we want, well, that's it. We're done with you. We'll go somewhere else and shop. That's a consumer mentality. That's appropriate. It makes sense. That's how things work in our society when it comes to shopping. But when we come to church, do we approach our involvement in church from a consumer mentality or do we come with a ministry mindset? A ministry mindset that says, how can I edify my brothers and sisters in Christ today? How can I help them follow Jesus more closely today? How many of us have entered into the covenant of membership whereby we formally commit to loving the other members of this church. And we say, I'm committed to that, no matter what. Even if that means we have to work through our struggles, our difficulties, and forgive each other, that's what we're committed to doing. And then, therefore, letting others know that we are disciples of Christ. How many of us are praying for the other members of our church? One of the most uh, um, wonderful things we just happened this past week, I'm ashamed to admit this, but we finally started emailing the people that we pray for with our joint board meetings and our elders and deacons get together. We spend a portion of that meeting praying for the members of our church. We've been doing this for several uh, years now. Our brother, brother Ron Plasinski helped us to move in this direction. It's a very good idea. And so we've been doing this for a while, but we've never contacted the members we're praying for and asked them. For, we had all kinds of requests. We had all kinds of people say, will you please pray for this, 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 this? 
it really was a dynamic kind of, we felt like we knew these people and we're now joining them with the concerns on their heart and mind. Are we praying for each other? Are the words that we speak to each other filled with grace? And do we share the promises of God in our interactions with each other, particularly with those who are going through trials? And are we able to use the word in such a way in which we try to build them up, point them to Christ, remind them of what God has done for us in Christ? Consider how the church was so dramatically built up within, within itself as the members of that church, the church of Jesus Christ. Consider what was going on trying to rebuild and build anew these relationships when this guy Saul entered into their midst. <laughs> Can you imagine that dynamic? Here's the guy that was out to destroy your church. Now he's a member of your church. Saul, I'm thankful to say, was not an object of revenge from his former enemies. He was not shunned by embittered members. But the gospel of grace was at work in the hearts of God's people, and they welcomed him, they forgave him, they received him, they embraced him, even though he had inflicted untold anguish and heartache and suffering in the lives of those who had suffered at the hand at his hands. I came across an illustration this week uh, in which I heard about the story of a young man in a tribe, a particular village in New Guinea. And he had the privilege of being sent away to school. And during the time that he is off at attending school elsewhere, uh, he was converted to Christ. And so he comes back to his village and it's been a while and so he's back to the island that he particularly grew up on and where his family is located and he's in his village and he's completed his education. So it's been a number of years now he's back and gathered on the Lord's Day, some of the missionaries had started the practice now of having a number of these Christians and believers gather together. And during their observance and celebration of the Lord's Day, they uh, celebrated the Lord's Supper. And the missionary noticed out of his eye here that this young graduate, this guy has come back to the island, he noticed it, and the guy had this incredible reaction. He was like sort of shaking and shuddering, and he did this really strange kind of physical uh, expression that seemed like a tremor or something under great strain. The missionary leaned over to him at some point and said, are you okay? And the young man took a while and he said, yeah, I'm okay. He says, I noticed that the man over there, and he points to the, not didn't point, he sort of acknowledged the gentleman over there, described him, who is partaking of the Lord's Supper with us today is the man who killed and consumed the body of my father. He said, I was shocked to see that the murderer of my father sitting down here among us at the table of the Lord. And he said, but that shock then was followed by a sense of calm realization that the same Savior who washed my sins away in his precious blood is the same Savior who washed his sins away. Being edified in the gospel reminds us that all of us are people who one time were enemies of God. Now we've been 
reconciled to God, and we are now continually being reconciled to each other through the gospel in our relationships. Does the gospel draw you into discipling? I hope and pray you will be more and more, and I hope you'll come to the Wednesday night study. It's fascinating, it's practical, it's helpful, and there's no one ever who is an expert on it. We're all people who are learning and still growing in this area. One final thought here, and that is point number three, the church was still growing and still going. Still growing and still going. This other dimension of the early church noted in this report was its continuous and continuing growth. The end of verse 31 says it continued to increase. What's the secret of that early church growth? Was it some kind of complicated formula? X plus Y equals Z. And if you just follow those simple steps, do this and do this, then you will see these results. I don't think so. Was it some particular kind of convoluted program that they were following? I still don't think so. The answer is given right here at the end of the verse there, verse 31. It says that these believers went on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, because of those things, the church then continued to increase. They simply feared God and they were encouraged and strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Now you say, that seems pretty simplistic. Well, I mean, isn't simple sometimes the best way? As they say, keep it simple, stupid. Isn't that what they always say? I would like to just uh, draw attention again to a very helpful book, When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. If you've not read this book, and you've ever struggled with all sorts of issues as to why you're so concerned about what other people think of you and why that seems to be a big factor in your life. The Fear of Man is an excellent book in trying to address some of those. And one of the things he explores in this book, and he has multiple chapters devoted to it, is learning to, get, to grow in the fear of God. And he goes through a number of uh, passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament talking about when Christians were filled with awe filled with amazement, filled with a sense of wonder at what God was doing, what God revealed about himself, about different times when they saw Jesus and he was the transfiguration and the burning bush and he just goes through all Isaiah and the, chapter 6 and God reveals himself in the temple, whatever. And so he says this, the fear of the Lord means reverent submission that leads to obedience. The word can be interchangeable, interchanged with worship to rely on the Lord, to trust in the Lord, to hope in the Lord, is to learn to fear the Lord. And then he goes on to talk about um, what kind of reverential obedience we'll be to having in our hearts and lives. He says, one of the great blessings of the fear of the Lord, if we learn to grow in the fear of the Lord and learn to think much of him and less of ourselves, he says, we will think less often about ourselves. We won't sit there and obsess over, well, I wonder if they think that what they, I'm wearing looks good today, or I wonder if they really will give me all these likes on Facebook. I wonder if, how many friends I have, whatever. You'll be thinking less about yourself because you're thinking more about what God is the important, most important person in the universe. And when the heart is being filled with the greatness of God, there is less room for the question, what are people going to think about me? 
So then he concludes in one particular section, and I'm just bouncing around the book here, but I want to bring one thought to you. He says, Lord, teach us as believers to fear you. Your grace is not always amazing to us. We are slow to hate our sin. We are more concerned with what someone thinks about our appearance than we are about reverential obedience before you. We want to delight in fear. We want to treasure it and give it to the next generation. What's my point here? My point is that the more I learn to fear the Lord and to understand the greatness of who he is and how awesome he truly is and what it is to be in his presence and to be filled with awe and amazement, then we'll learn to what? Despise the things that he despises and we'll keep away from evil. Proverbs 16, 6, Proverbs 8, 13. Are we as a church pondering oftentimes the cross in such a way that the cross moves us to live with holy respect for God, the God who loved us, the God who gave himself for us? Are we gripped by the realities of heaven and hell? Do we have compassionate hearts toward people who are lost? Does that compassion lead us to engage them in gospel conversations? You say, well, I'm afraid. I'm intimidated. What are they going to think of me? When people are big and God is small. What are they going to think of me? Fear of man. My prayer is that we as a church and individual believers, that the Holy Spirit will point each one of us to Jesus in a new and fresh way. That Jesus will continually remind us that even though we are rejected by the people of this world, we are treated as outcasts, we may be maligned, mocked, reviled by our society, nonetheless, we are dearly loved by Jesus. He thinks we're the best thing ever in Christ. We are adopted by God. We are his precious, beloved children for truly a believer. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are justified freely by his blood. And the church that revels in the gospel is going to be the church that follows in step with Jesus by obeying his call, delighting to do his will. His will is that we go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. The church kept growing because the what? The church kept evangelizing. In the next chapter, we're actually going to read about Peter, and we'll get there. Chapter 10, we're going to read about Peter following the leading of the Holy Spirit because he himself is walking in the fear of God, and he is willing to step out of his comfort zone for the first time in his life. He actually steps over the threshold and enters into the house of a Gentile, which is like radically different for him. And so the question comes to you and me. What's on your progress report? Does the person have a love for Christ? Is there faith in Christ and trusting in him alone? Are you alive in Christ? Have you come to faith in Christ and truly committed yourself to him? Do you confess Christ as your Lord? Is there evidence of the fear of God in your life? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that when it comes to measuring our progress, the first thing we are going to do, Lord, if we're truly a believer, is we're going to fall back on Christ and say, well, Jesus Christ has met all of the standards that are being measured. We claim the righteousness of Christ. We'll never measure up, and that's true. But having said that, Lord, we know that also if we are followers of Christ, we know that we have lots of growing to do. And we thank you that you're not giving up on us. And I pray, Lord, that in, as we think about this progress report of the church there in Acts chapter 9, I pray that you would help us to think in our own lives, Lord, to do some serious thinking, some serious examination of our hearts and what's going on in our lives and what's really important and valued and treasured by us. And Lord, I pray that we might, as a result of these uh, assessments, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to get back to the simple things of our love and desire to know Christ, to treasure the gospel, to be filled with the Spirit, to have less fear of man and more boldness to speak of Christ and to turn away from sin. And Lord, I pray also if there's anyone here today who's never really stepped into the kingdom, who's never really entered into the kingdom, who's always just heard about it and always just sort of gone along with everybody else, I pray that today, Lord, they would begin to realize their markings someday are going to be such that they will be said, depart from me, I never knew you. And they will face the reality of a true and incomprehensibly awful hell for eternity. And so, Lord, we pray that your Spirit may have your way with us and that we may truly progress in the areas that your Spirit is leading us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.